Okay, we are live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Annex, a sociology podcast. My name is Joe Cohen. I'm a sociologist at Queens College in the City University of New York in New York City. And today we are kicking off the spring 2023 semester with a great topic, how Americans misunderstand China. We have some terrific guests. Like, and I think it's an important topic, not just for sociologists and anthropologists, but like a society at large. And it's an area where sociology and anthropology, because we're talking to an anthropologist today, has a lot to contribute. Um, China looms large in the American imagination. And we think a lot about China because China matters. It matters in economic affairs and in international politics and increasingly in science and culture. But when we contemplate the country and its government and its people, are we thinking in caricatures? Like, what do we really know about China? What it's like, how the system works? Our relations are with the country and the society are important. So if we're going to uh, engage, we might as well do it with realistic understandings. And who better to turn to, to clarify, you know, the inner workings of society than some experts on the topic. And we have two terrific experts today. First, I want to introduce you to uh, Emily Chua. Emily is uh, from a, an anthropologist at the National University of Singapore. She's author of The Currency of Truth, Newsmaking and Late Socialist Imaginaries of China's Digital Era with the, the University of Michigan Press. It's a book about how the media functions in China, delving into the details of the practical lives of uh, Chinese journalists. Um, and uh, it, it looks terrific, and I'm really excited that she's able to come on the show. Uh, welcome, Emily Chua. Hi, everyone. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Joe, for um, organizing and having, having me. And really I'm looking forward to the conversation. Totally. And I'm particularly excited because uh, you stayed up quite late. What time is it out there in Singapore? Uh, a little past one in the morning. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for that. I couldn't do anything past 9 p.m. So hat, hat tip to you. <laughs> now, our second guest is Yawen Lei from Harvard University. Yawen is the author of The Contentious Public Sphere, Law, Media, and Authoritarian Rule in China with Princeton University Press. It's a book that talks about how the Chinese government managed public opinion through censorship and regulation, and also how people came to use those institutions uh, and uh, create a public uh, discourse or a, a civic discourse. We'll get her to talk a little bit more about it. But well, first, welcome, Yawen, to the Annex. It's great to have you. Hi. Hi, Joe. Hi, Emily. And thank you for having me. It's it, 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 First of all, uh, I guess, first of all, happy beginning of the semester to, uh, to both of you. I, I, have you guys started yet? Have you started teaching yet? I just, I just started. Like this week, you just started? Uh, yesterday. Yeah, my first day is tomorrow. How about you, Emily? Are you, have you started yet? We're in yet? week three. Oh, you're in the thick of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing that I, I has been on my mind, and I've been dying to talk to somebody about it, so I just want to get two minutes of your time. Uh, I want to talk about chat GPT, because honestly, it is completely shaking up my world, and I don't even know how to teach this coming course. And I saw this, I saw this, uh, this story in the news today. I, I just want to put it up here, uh, just because I think it's really something else. Uh, it, this is uh, news that came out yesterday. Chat GPT passed an MBA exam given at Wharton. 
the professor, I, it was like an entry level exam, I guess, to see if you could like waive the organizational behavior requirement or something along those lines. And he said the student got a B and the professor would have waived him out of the course requirement, which means, you know, basically chat GPT can perform like a first year Wharton MBA student. Uh, I don't know. What are you guys thinking about this technology? Like for me, it's just, I don't even know what to think about or what to make of it. Uh, what have your reactions been? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, yeah, and if you don't mind, I just jumped in because this afternoon I just opened, I just started my GPT account and I asked it to do a Marxian analysis of a situation in which someone had worked for them or they had worked for someone else. And it was really it was really shocking sort of seeing the words just sort of stream onto the page of a solid B answer. Um, but that said, it was, it was a really a B. Um, and that yeah. thing, <laughs> um, it was very truthy and, and sort of a, a very weak argument, um, just sort of plausible sounding things. I don't truthy. know, Yellen, have you? Have yeah, you, uh, I, I, as a person who study um, sociology of work, I'm always very skeptical about this kind of news because we heard, we have heard about how robots, how softwares would replace a human worker for um, hundreds of years. And I think that happens, but to some extent, and then there will be new kind of jobs that um, occur. And um, I see that we have a tendency to have some kind of technological fetishism. So I personally study um, robotization, automation in China in the Chinese context. And I saw that um, like people's hope deviate from the reality we really give um, uh, uh, technology too much power. <laughs> <laughs> That's my suspicion, but I don't really know. I haven't begun to use uh, chat gbt and i hope chat gbt can do more <laughs> <laughs> but for, so you th you think it's not going to you think it, uh, everybody's a little bit too overexcited about it we're ultimately going to be disappointed yeah, yeah uh, like ai right machine learning people have been talking about these for many years automation <laughs> right I got to say, though, in some ways, it has been amazing to use the, this technology. I think that there is a certain type of student, like a true B student, not the great inflated B student, but the, the true B student. Like in my mind, a B student is a student who you give them instructions and they'll give you exactly what you told them to give you. And it will be really polished and nice, but I'll have no imagination you know, no real meat, but it'll be really well executed and they'll do exactly as they told. And I think those students are in trouble. Like I, they're like this, they're like the students who were really good at doing an ANOVA by hand in 1960, right before like computers came in. That's my feeling. Emily, yeah. do you have a different take? Are you like, what are you No, what are you no, same. I mean, there's sort of been, I've, I've gotten fed a lot of articles about how this is really a challenge for teachers because how are we going to identify plagiarism? But I think I mean, it's really a challenge for students because how are they going to distinguish themselves from an AI in terms of their value add for a future, for a potential employee? So, I mean, I almost feel like one could really quickly turn it on to the students where the assignment is to, you know, prove that you can do something better than this AI bot because that's what you're going to need to do when you get out there. Because the AI bot is $42 a month. I think they just introduced their sort of premium package, right? Yep. So, I mean, if you're trying to make more than $42 a month, you're going to have to do better <laughs> than GPT on this assignment. 
what what are your plans either of you like do you have have has gpt altered your plans at all for the upcoming semester are you starting to at least think about things different or like are you just waiting and seeing like what's your what's your posture towards gpt right now uh, uh either you want to yeah when you want to what I haven't changed my plan. So I assign homework and writing to students, but usually I tend to trust students. And I told <laughs> them I truly trust them. And I believe that they will you know, do things in with um, integrity. <laughs> How about you, Emily? Yeah, I mean, I sort of, I haven't reacted fast enough to sort of revamp everything, but I was testing my assignments like, against the sort of, possibility and I think you know they were they're sort of the I'm teaching a third year class right now and it's sort of designed to test sort of so-called higher order skills so I think it mm. it would take a lot of work to get to train GPT to give you a pretty good answer to these questions so I don't think it's that much of a yeah. thing this semester I have a feeling like when 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 the image generation came out I had a feeling like eventually we're going to see so much of it that our eyes are going to start to recognize generated content. Like uh, it, it, our eyes will instantly recognize generated text and it will come to be seen as bland or milk toast or, or you know, otherwise not valuable. I think, I think eventually we're going to catch on, but there's going to be some people who are going to have to find a new thing because, you know, some stuff is just not valuable when you're competing against the computer. You have to find some new jobs. Anyhow. Anyhow, let's move on and get started talking about China. That was that was interesting. So th this is this is a great topic, and I'm really I'm really excited to be talking to both of you uh, uh, about this. You know, I, I will profess that you know my understanding of China uh, up until I came to Queens College was akin to like how Americans saw the Soviet Union in 1985. You know what I mean? It was like dated and obviously caricatured and it's not like i just it's it's one of those caricatures that you have but you just never even rethink it and it was only when i came to queen's college which has a very large uh, chinese population i have lots of chinese colleagues where i really came to understood like uh, you know i was very simplified and almost caricatured embarrassingly so so it's i'm really grateful to have you both come on to the show today to talk about it and i thought that uh we would just start off like just with a a, a global take you both have had a lot of interactions with americans and i'm sure americans have come to you for your expertise on china from what you see like how do americans misunderstand china just globally i mean there's probably a million ways but are there some really obvious sort of recognizable ways that americans fundamentally misunderstand the country the government the people its institutions uh, emily do you want to start us off like what are your impressions how do americans in a general level misunderstand china yeah um that's an interesting question i think uh, sort of I think maybe the, the sort of strongest impression I have is that sort of despite a lot of scholarship sort of trying to dislodge this image, there is still this tendency to imagine China as a place where a very small handful of almost all powerful sort of party leaders um, directs the lives and the minds of the rest of everyone being this huge and powerless and undistinguished mass. Um, 
and I think sort of my experience of working there and, and studying there and learning learning about people there is that things make a lot more sense for me when I think of society as a much more sort of intricate network of very fluidly shifting relationships um, uh, in, in journalism for, uh, for sure. Um, so that's the sort of topic of my research. Um, I think when you think of this image, when you hold on to this image of sort of small cabal with a huge, huge powerless mass, there's a tendency to um, think um, only in terms of coercion or to be very focused on the question of control and coercion. Um, and then the sort of cost of that is that you don't get to think about anything else that's going on um, in, you know, news being one of the most culturally and socially significant institutions in the world's most populous country. There's lots of things going on besides party control. Um, and so that that becomes a sort of cost of that, I think. <laughs> Yawen? Yeah, I have a um, similar observation. Actually, I have three things that I want to say. Uh -huh. Perhaps I just say uh, one of them first. So it's, it's related to um, Emily's observation. So um, what I say is based on, on my, my reading of uh, tweets and also my talking to uh, many people. So uh, first, I think people tend to really, as Emily said, that have a monolithic view of the Chinese government. So now I focus on the Chinese government. So they focus only on, on the top of the government. So these views hold that um, top level leaders have tremendous influence on the whole the entire uh, political system. And also it assumed that some kind of coherence uh, exists within the state. So there is no doubt that the Chinese top leaders are very powerful and we shouldn't really neglect this fact. This is really a fact. However, um, the Chinese bureaucracy is enormous and uh, complex. Um, in fact, I would argue it's one of the most complex organizations in the world. And one of the most influential concepts in Chinese politics is called fragmented authoritarianism. So based on this view, um, on the authority below the very peak of the Chinese political system is actually uh, fragmented and disjoined. And wow. this fragmentation um, is structurally uh, based. And scholars have pointed out that um, this kind of complex system and also sometimes the conflict conflicting into a government relationship shape uh, the negotiation between different uh, government agencies and can influence policy uh, in implementation. So in fact, it's not uncommon for uh, the central governments, uh, for example, to encounter uh, problems uh, and resistance when they ask a local government to implement its policy because um, each agency, each um, government unit could have its own uh, interest. And but of course, uh, the level of fragmentation can vary over time and across different parts of the government. And on uh, the recentralization of power under pre President Xi Jinping have reduced uh, the level of fragmentation since 2013. And in fact, one of the way he tried to reorganize the bureaucracies is really to recentralize because he saw such fragmentation as a weakness of the Chinese state. Yeah, so Emily oh. and I share a similar view. <laughs> Wait, I want to because this is really profound in some ways, right? It's like so the 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 bureaucracy itself is like its own almost society in a society, and it's something with which the the leaders themselves have to contend, and it's sort of like almost an independent force, is what you're saying. And, and how big it must have millions of people in it. I mean, yeah, a lot of Chinese bureaucrats. Yeah. 
it's also quite profound in the sense that, you know, I mean, this is something obviously sociologists should recognize that governments have limited capacity to do what they want to do. It's like, uh, I mean, and, and of course it would be true in China as well. Like a government is just an organization. It can only do so much. What about, oh, that, so that's very profound. So power is, is more distributed and it's, it, it doesn't just reside in the, in the leader, in the leaders. It's also interesting because then you realize when you when you assume that the leaders control everything, you're really writing off a whole country as like, you know, just drones or uh, mindless. And that's probably far from the case. What else? You said you had three. Can we get the uh, the two others? That was good. Yeah. OK. So um, also, I think uh, people um, have a tendency to um, associate uh, social protests with um, political instability or the regime instability, because I think uh, sometimes Americans tend to be too excited about <laughs> protests in China and try to in- overinterpret uh, the consequences. Right. And um, so, and in fact, uh, protests are not uncommon in China. It, uh, protests happen almost on a daily basis. Uh, and, but most protests don't really threaten political or regimes of stability. And many common protests target uh, businesses or local governments. And for example, workers organize protests to get their wages from employers. Mm. And peasants organize protests to ask uh, local government to give them more compensation when the government take their land. But most protests are very localized and are organized by a small group of people. So they don't really threaten um, the regime. So as Emily said that uh, we shouldn't really, there are just different kinds of social group, different network, different different bubbles. And then people have different group, social group have uh, very different interests. And and scholars uh, who uh, study Chinese politics agree that protests uh, threaten a regime stability only if they lead to uh, divisions among top political elites. And I'm sure you both know the recent uh, white paper protests in China, right? Mm-hmm. So that's protests were very kind of unusual because they took place across many cities and were joined by different social groups, uh, including the urban middle class, uh, the working class, uh, and also college students. Uh, so that was that were actually quite unusual, but even this kind of protest didn't really threaten uh, political uh, instability because the political elites were not divided by uh, the protesters, the protests. If we imagined authoritarian societies to have broken civil societies where uh, protest isn't allowed, speaking ill of the government isn't allowed, what you're saying is that the Chinese system actually has incorporated some type of consideration of these mechanisms, like protest is regular and there's a feedback mechanism. So it's not uh, it's not just a purely a, a, a one direction. The government tells you what to do, and then the people do it. Is that, is that what yeah, you're saying? People resist um, from time to time, and the government has developed a lot of uh, tactics in terms of how to uh, dealing with uh, with protesters, and that has been very important agenda for the Chinese government. I think the problem is really the level of um, civil disobedience. So this time, I I mean. During the uh, white paper protests, I did find something quite unusual because in some parts of China, there were not um, at some point, so there were not enough police to to control the local the situation. And you know, when people obey, follow the rule, then you don't really need to have so many 
police. Um, but then this time I, I did see that um, they were struggling a little bit, but um, but after they took, the government took action, they still can control the situation. Amazing. All right. And then we'll get, before we turn to the books, I'm enjoying this. Please give us number three. Number three. Okay. So uh, let me talk about number three. Um, um, so, okay, let me think about how to uh, uh, articulate. So I think this uh, misconception is about uh, China's political economic system. And uh, in the U.S., many people think today's China is a communist or a socialist country. And it's very misleading. And I think when we talk about communism, we are talking about a social order based on, on, on egalitarianism and the common uh, ownership of property. And when we talk about socialism, we mean a range of economic and social system uh, characterized by social ownership of the means of production. And is it true that uh, China is ruled by the Communist Party? But in reality, um, China today doesn't really have a communist or a socialist system. And instead, it's an authoritarian state capitalism. And China is one of the most uh, unequal countries in the world in terms of income and wealth uh, distribution. So China and the U.S. are very similar in this aspect. And, um, in, and also in China, in its institution, in terms of allocating access to public goods, often discriminated uh, against the working class and the disadvantaged group. And also the Chinese government is the single most important actor um, involved in capital accumulation in China and probably in the world. Um, <laughs> and um, the development of China's economy um, in post-reform uh, era is a result of the Chinese government's alliance with different kinds of capital, uh, foreign capital, uh, domestic capital. And um, for example, a Wall Street's financial capital is the often lobby for the Chinese government in the US. So in the US, I saw both the right and the left have misconceptions about the nature of China's political uh, system. So when Republican criticized China as a, as a communist party, I was wondering, what does that mean? What that means? <laughs> You're talking about this is a communist country, but actually China is not a communist country. Yeah. And also I think left, especially radical left in the US uh, tend to romanticize the Chinese Communist Party. But in reality, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't do anything to, <laughs> or doesn't do a lot to increase uh, the, you know, the uh, inequality in the country. <laughs> so I think this is really... I think it's strange and people tend to see or oh, come the label communist party, but actually yeah. they are not communist party if we define uh, communism oh, like uh, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Are, 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 I have a question for both of you. Is it that in some ways our conceptions are stuck in like 1960s Cold War thinking? Is that is that what's going on with us? A lot of us are sort of just trapped with old old ideas that we haven't broken out of. I mean that that tends to be sort of it 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 does often seem like a cold war framework is the easiest way for people to sort of just contain china conceptually yeah. and not deal with its contemporaneity i mean i think china is it it's it's such a puzzling presence when you recognize it's in the 21st century and everything that's yeah. happening in 21st century is also <laughs> happening in China. So as Yawen is pointing out, you can't just think of it as this communist state where everyone's living these dreary <laughs> lives and obeying Big Brother. I mean, it's got 
massive booming economy, cultural change, social change, all of that upheaval that comes with sort of rapid consumerism. Um, and, you know, and I think, so that's another sort of thing that that's interesting for, I think, sociologists and anthropologists think about um, the sort of existential struggles of people on a day-to-day basis are not all about party control. It's so much about, you know, what, social and cultural change, like what kind of person should I be? What kind of value should I be pursuing? Um, you know, moral frameworks sort of having to be revised. Um, mm. All of these are issues that, you know, are, are, are happening there as much as they are happening here. And there's yeah. so much possibility of discourse, but that can only happen if we sort of move past that Cold War framework. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, that's very interesting that you make a really interesting point that uh, are, are these old, are these old mistaken conceptions preventing American people and Chinese people from interacting separate from politics, separate from international relations? I bet it is. I bet it does have an effect. Uh, it's, it's a very profound observation. So uh, why don't we shift gears? Because, you know, there is obviously a lot to learn about China, and it's certainly a complex country. And the only way to deal with complexity is to take a look at some narrow slices of it. So why don't we start by talking about the currency of truth? And let me just get it up on the screen here just for a second, in case anybody wants to buy it from a better bookseller. The Currency of Truth by Emily Chua is uh, a book about the news media in China. Well, why don't, why don't we start off? Emily, tell us about the book. Uh, uh, what's it about? How did you get started in it? Just give us sort of the a plain sure. language sort of telling. Right. Cool. Okay. So, um, yeah, the backstory, I guess, of the book is that I just, I, I wanted to write an ethnography of newsmaking in China that didn't set out from the question of what does news do for the party or what does news do for the people, um, but instead sort of asked what news articles do for newsmakers themselves. How do newsmakers understand their articles to work? How do newsmakers understand the meaning of their articles yeah, I, I wanted to sort of set out from the question of journalists' everyday lives and see um, what they think their news articles do for them. Um, and I wanted in particular to work with ordinary journalists rather than um, journalists who specialize in what gets called investigative or critical news reporting, um, because I think a lot of the English language work about news and journalism in China has focused on this very brave and very admirable, but also very exceptional group. I think yeah. um, Yao in, in her book on the contentious public sphere actually mentioned that investigative news articles account for less than 1% of the total sort of news content that gets published. So I guess I kind of wanted to write about the 99% <laughs> of yeah. ordinary journalists. Um, and these are journalists who aren't necessarily out to become party-defying heroes, um, but who do actually have the moral and professional ideals that they're trying to pursue alongside more practical things um, that we're all trying to pursue, like career, salary, and so on. Um, so I think there's been this sort of tendency, what I was trying to push back against is this sort of tendency to categorize journalists um, in China as either being the sort of very brave and boundary-pushing kind, or being this very sort of mercenary and self-interested kind who will write whatever the party pays them to write. Um, and I think that that sort of stems from this tendency to see China in terms of control, um, because if control is the only story, then there's only two options, right? You sort of either defy control and get punished or obey and get rewarded. 
Yeah. Um, and I wanted to write about, you know, I, th I think that's sort of quite a destructive caricature of the 99% of ordinary journalists who don't fall into either of those categories, um, um, who like ordinary people everywhere are on the one hand trying to live socioeconomically sort of rewarding and secure lives, mm. um, but also trying to do the right thing and, and you know, be, make themselves good and worthy um, individuals. So I wanted to write, yes. So wait, I have a question. So I'm I'm understanding you talked to sort of like the beat reporters. You were talking to like the person who does the sports beat or the metro beat or the all of those sections that don't involve geopolitical conflict between the Americans and the Chinese. Is that basically Well, no, actually, I mean the huh? the the journalists that I spend the most time with actually were writing for a section called the politics section. Okay. Um but they weren't, you know, I mean when 99% of the politics articles are pretty run of the mill sort of reports on just what's happening with this and that party office or, you know, um, new policies, new achievements, um, pretty ordinary stuff. Um, but I, I have a question because it's also interesting. Like I, uh, you're talking about a prevailing view that like looks at the practice of journalism through simply the question, like, are you on the Chinese side or are you against the Chinese side? Right. And that's like what they've reduced the entire profession to is what I'm understanding. And it rings very true. Is, is that, is that, am I sort of getting it or? Yeah, that's sort of the reductive um, binary that I'm trying to push against because, nice. you know, most of the time you're writing in China, there isn't a question of whose side are you on? Yeah. Yeah. And I also so. have a question for you. <laughs> Sorry for please. jumping. No, please. So, like um, when, I mean, which is, what is the period in which you did your ethnography, the specific period? Yeah, so the most, I spent about a year working at the newspaper. It was year 2010 into 2011. And mm -hmm. then after that, it was mostly follow-up um, visits and interviews mm -hmm. up till about 2018 now. Yeah, thank you. So wait, you, yeah. you, go, go. Yeah. Oh, so I'm asking because the political, uh, larger political climate has changed so much yeah. In uh, 20, uh, since 2012 and 2013, I'm just really interested in knowing, I mean, you have your follow-up observation and how yeah. did you observe change over time? Of the, if there is any change mm -hmm. in terms of their daily practices uh, when we consider the change in larger uh, political climate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely the scope, there was a, a feeling, it was very palpable that this for, um sort of more critical statements shrank um, and also that there were more, more and more assignments that were more and more structured in terms of what is the political message that is supposed to be carried across. Um, but I guess what I think is important to highlight is that, you know, there's a tendency to say, okay, as soon as Xi Jinping came on stage, then um, media had to become very uh, obedient and propagandistic because of this very powerful person on top. But, but really, the, anything that happens has to happen through these complex networks. Right? It's sort of not just the person on the top can order this to be the case and now everything's going to be the case. So, I mean, I guess what I observed was how the new sort of propaganda objectives really had to work their way through um, to the local um, propaganda um, offices and their demands, which then had to work on the editor-in-chief and the sort of executive level of the newspaper itself, which then had to sort of trickle down to the um, particular department editors and everyone along the way has to somehow become incentivized 
and become aligned. So it's it's a much more sort of tooth pulling process than than um, than sometimes it, it gets written about. It, so it's very easy to achieve. How do, how does that work? How how does the government uh, sway the news? Then what are the concrete mechanisms that they they use to influence journalism or influence what's reported? Yeah, so I mean, Yawan has written a lot about this. I don't know if you <laughs> want to. Yeah, well, well, so certainly, I mean, the most obvious sort of um, direct mechanism is just um, the directives that get sent from central and local propaganda office to the newspaper to its editors, uh, editor in chiefs, who then have to send that down. Um, but I think something that um, I write about in the book is is how actually a lot of the incentive to stay aligned. Hmm. Um, actually comes from the commercial interests of the newspaper um, uh, rather than through direct political. Yeah. You, know, you know, let's introduce Yawen's book and make it a little more dynamic because really yeah. she is the best person to answer this question. So Yawen, let's just bring it in. I just want to give a reminder about your book just in case uh, anybody uh, forgot. Uh, Yawen's book is The Contentious Public Sphere, Law, Media, and Authoritarian Rule in China. And Yawen studies the the, the precise mechanisms by which uh, the government uh, influenced news, but that it, it had some unintended consequences. Let's start with just the, the mechanisms of control, Yawen. Exactly how does the government manage the news in such a big and complex system? So, um, as Emily pointed out, they have uh, these uh, propaganda officials who are in charge of, of censorship, and they would uh, look at your topics to see if these topics are specific topics are doable. So, um, I'm the person I am trained as a political sociologist, and I specialize in the past uh, just uh, in political uh, sociology and also social movement collective action. So I, um, my book was more, I think I interviewed many um, journalists, but uh, most of them were doing uh, this kind of more critical uh, reporting. And um, so the government would restrict their, the topic they can, uh, they can work on. And also after they produce something, so there are layers of layers. So they have editors, chief editors and um, party officials who could read their, their writing and just kill on the publications before mm. it uh, came out, it went out. And also, um, um, in the, there was a golden period uh, when uh, Chinese journalists were um, faced with uh, less, uh, less control. But then uh, after Xi Jinping became the president, then there, there has been more uh, in, intense, intensified control. And um, I remember in 2013, since 2013, the government began to actually um, put uh, put uh, uh, official propaganda official as the chief editor and also editors of news organizations. So in the past, uh, those um, these those people were the chief editor were actually professional journalists. And then I know because China has some kind of more uh, liberal leaning, uh, very influential news organization. So those organizations were purged by. Uh, the Chinese government, so they use uh, propaganda officials as chief editors, and that really um, make um, that really had a lot of consequences. And so, 
uh, the period I studied was a very like optimistic period. Mm. And after uh, she became um, the president, uh, many of um, the journalists I knew in the past either left their job or or actually um, exile um, in, uh, and they, they actually moved to other countries because of the potential problems. Mm. So it sounds like self-selection is like a big mechanism, <laughs> both in terms of, I, I'm, if I'm understanding this right, if you're a young journalist and you want to be editor-in-chief of, I don't know, the Beijing Times or whatever it is, the big paper, it helps to be a party functionary as well. And it helps to discipline the organization from within. Is that what you're saying? And so in a way, you have journalists who are aligned with the party and then they'll leave if they don't want part of it. That's what I'm understanding. Am I mistaking um, this? Or? I think it's more nuanced. So oh. there is really no like white or uh, black or white. Do you actually, are you affiliated with um, the party? Because the party is such a complicated structure. Right, of course. And in fact, many people within the party are very, um, uh, open-minded and they have they really want to have some kind of reform and so a lot of news news organization like are affiliated with um, the party but there are also a lot of um, uh, heterogeneity among them so i think that they left because they just didn't see that in the past i think most people uh, most of the people whom I know saw some space or fragmentation that I, I mentioned earlier. So they saw some space where they can, for example, uh, utilize uh, the conflicts or uh, different interests between different uh, parts of the government structure mm. or some government really want, want to look out and want to make money. So they want to utilize this opportunity. They saw there is a space, there was a space for them to do something that they really want. But when this space uh, be, um, shrink, some people saw oh, there was no hope, but they, they just they just left. And also, um, so there was also a trend, uh, a, I think, since perhaps uh, early 2000, and China's uh, IT um, industry began to, uh, to prosper. And then there are a lot of big internet companies in China began to actually collect and combine uh, news. So they provide news service. And many uh, uh, media professionals, journalists who worked uh, in news organizations uh, began to work for the internet companies because they saw there is a chance that they can reach out to more, a much broader audience uh, through working in internet companies. Because uh, mm. uh, in my book, I mentioned that so in China, there was no like a national newspaper, like um, kind of more commercialized national newspaper, like New York Times, this type. Okay. But then internet companies actually serve this function um, at one point of time. Uh. And people saw hope in uh, working for the internet companies. And many people actually left uh, liberal leaning um, or, uh, news organizations and to work in for this uh, internet company. But again, uh, after the crackdown, many people feel ho hopeless. And many of the um, journalists or media professionals uh, whom I know before uh, became um, begin to work as public relation person, mm. public relation company to deal with uh, to deal with uh, relationship between government and corporations. So many of them actually shifted to other career paths. Nice. So that's actually why I was asking um, uh, Emily question about the period she studied, and and also because as uh, Joe talked about, there is a selection process. Some people left, some people stay. And then just uh, there are different uh, career paths. And recently, 
I was very surprised because I um so Harvard has a, a master program called like a, that's uh, specializing East Asian countries, and I have students from China, many students, and I was so surprised to know that um, some of my Chinese students want want still want to become journalists. Um, they want to go back to China to work as journalists, even though they recognize um, it's so difficult to produce and the kind of news they want to produce, but. They do see hope, and um, I admire their courage a lot. Yeah. That's very interesting. Just to jump in, and in terms of the contrast to the sort of ordinary journalists that I've been working with, they actually haven't really left. Not not so many of them have left uh, the profession. And in fact, one of the things they would always say is that you know, the more idealistic you are, the harder it is the more likely you are to quit. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of part of their distinguishing themselves from right. um, these the sort of hard, harder ball pushing, sort of boundary pushing journalists. They, that they that that's a sort of a vulnerability in the sense that um, you know if if you are, the more idealistic you are, basically the more frustrated you become, and the more um, tempting it is, or the more you're inclined to just leave in sort of frustration and join a PR company, real estate, there's a lot of consulting, a lot of different professions that pay better um, and that you don't have to deal with this constant frustration, this constant sort of sense that your profession is not able to function the way that it should. Um, so I think, you know, even in 2010, for these ordinary journalists, there's the recognition that it's a constant struggle um, that, uh, you know, they, they were sort of prepared for this long-term um, uphill battle that will be marked by very limited success, um, um, but that yet that's that, that's that is the sort of goal on their horizon, and that that's mm -hmm. sort of I think it's their in a way their compromise with having to produce articles that don't live up to their own standards. Mm -hmm. um, that compromise is actually what enables a kind of sustained um, practice of the profession. Um, so that was sort of a, a different approach that they had. Right, and mm -hmm. I think Emily's um, work is super important because it really shows the different like classification, different kind of journalists um, um, in China. And as Emily uh, really pointed out that um, um, maybe China scholars focus on the type of uh, journalists that I study um, as a political sociologist. Mm -hmm. And so Emily's work really complement um, like people like, like work, um, like sociology, like myself's work. I have a question just for clarification in the contrast between your two vantage points. Is it that sort of like the Tom Friedman of China or the big editorial people, they'll get watched, they'll be subject to whatever government oversight, they'll be tangled up in politics. But when you drill down to like the neighborhood shopper, a uh, little newspaper, you know, and whoever's the, the party's just not at that level. Uh, is not really uh, functioning very much at that level of journalism. Is that what's happening? Am I misunderstanding this? Or so it's like yeah, only the big shots get watched, and then there's yeah, a layer of small-time journalism that just operates freely or more freely. I, I wouldn't. I'm not sure, Yavin, what you think, but but I, I wouldn't sort of distinguish it. Into, I wouldn't say that you know if you lay low enough, you don't. You sort of escape. Um, oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that that's true, but I would say that. It, if you're small enough or you know if you if you fail to become big enough you might not get read at all and that's right. actually something that a lot of the the journalists i was working with 
a lot of the time we're writing, you know, for the politics section, very sort of mainstream articles, and they didn't expect anyone to really read them. <laughs> and so that that actually is part of the argument that I develop of how um, news in today's China, maybe it's more fruitful <laughs> to think of it less as a sort of mass communication medium and more as a kind of currency. Um, I mean, I can explain that analogy if you want. But, yeah, would you? Would you? Because that was interesting. I, I did want an explanation. Yeah. yeah, 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 sure. So, I mean, I guess, you know, if you think about money, right, like say a $10 or $1 bill, there is um, some content on its face, a 10 or a one, and that's sort of legible at face value. Um, but what that dollar bill actually does for the people who use it um, is really a function of the particular setting, the particular relationships within which they're using that dollar. And that kind of value isn't legible from its face. Right? And so I guess what I argue is that um, newsmakers in China are often using news in a similar manner, sort of less to communicate something to a public and more to do things within the particular settings and relationships that they find themselves in. Um, so, for example, a journalist might write uh, an article about a particular <coughs> local company, not so much for the objective of telling the public about this company, um, but more to earn some esteem <coughs> from one of her editors. Um, mm. Or the editor-in-chief might publish an article in praise of a party policy or a party office not really to, you know, tell the masses to, that the party is great, but mostly to forge <coughs> an alliance with that local party official. Um, and, and the reason for this sort of practice or this usage of news, I think, in China's context is not because Chinese journalists are particularly unprofessional, which they often get sort of cast as being, um, but really because the political as well as commercial and sort of digital technological um, circumstances have combined to create the situation where journalists, many journalists like those whom I worked with, um, can no longer assume that their articles are going to be read. Um, so on the one hand, they're sort of in this conundrum um, where they want to write articles. The goal, the orienting goal and the horizon um, that they're oriented to is, the, is to write articles that have a big public impact. But in the meantime, they feel really strongly that um, they need to survive by writing articles um, that actually do more for their bosses or their business clients or their local political patrons, um, because these are the relationships that their survival depends on. How is technology changing all of this? Internet, social media, and not just how is it changing journalism, but how is it changing public dialogue in China, the public sphere that Yao Wen talks about? When I began to do my dissertation, because I actually wrote my book based on uh, my dissertation. That was a period when China's uh, social media, the internet, became more and more popular and advanced uh, in China. And so that creates a lot of public opinion leader. I think that was the one, that was one very important change. So uh, many um, journalists, they are not only journalists uh, anymore. So they had, there was, even though they are, they were journalists, but they were able to reach out to a huge audience uh, because people recognize them and appreciate their work. So they became very popular and very influential. So they are the like one, some of the public opinion leaders. And at the same time, so many like uh, lawyers who share similar political ambitions with some famous journalists also became public opinion leaders. So they are, they, then public opinion became to emerge in China. And these people are super, super um, influential because their followers, the number of their followers uh, actually 
were la became larger than the audience, the readers of yeah. many, many news newspaper. And the government just freaked out because when something happened, when uh, local governments um, had some trouble, made some mistakes, uh, these public opinion leaders began uh, to mobilize uh, ordinary people to participate. And uh, at one point of time, many protests happened, collective action happened because um, public opinion leader began to uh, utilize uh, uh, technology to reach out to huge uh, audience. And then that's actually um, um, led to the Chinese government's crackdown on, on, on these social media companies. And these social media companies have to hire uh, like in-house censors to read through the, the, all the, the, the post, uh, the um, media, uh, social media content. So that's one very important change. And another important change is um, there are a lot of um, people who are who are not trained, who are citizens, who become citizen journalists. And they, I mean, through this kind of technology, they they can also reach out to a lot of, um, a huge number of, um, of readers. Um, so these are significant uh, social change. Um, and actually, I also know a lot of censors who were hired by internet companies. They actually receive very low pay. So they are low skilled workers. Yeah. And they they also have they also can use software to um to actually uh, to um <clears throat> to um, censor. But um, in addition to this kind of automation, they also had to actually reuse their eyes. And mm -hmm. some complain that um, they didn't receive enough salary, and uh, and they overwork a lot, and some even quit their job because the job was no good. <laughs> Amazing. You know, it's they're very reminiscent of changes we're experiencing here. It's just sort of, you know, we, I mean, there are censors in media companies here in America and so many of the dynamics, but wait, Emily, sorry, I, I didn't mean to jump in. I just got Yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> where I was going to go with it, actually, was yeah. to think that, you know, the, the effect of one of the effects of technology is, as well as um, sort of, um, as Yawan was discussing, a sort of complement to that would be, you know, the, the sort of in, in America, there is um discourses about the rise of um digital media leading in towards a crisis of journalism or taking us into a sort of post-truth news era and i think um you know that that comes from the sort of fragmentation of audiences and the same um question or concern or struggle is also sort of i sort of saw happening with the journalists that I was working with, where the effect of digital technologies is such a fragmentation of audience. Um, and that puts so much pressure on the news companies, right? Or it makes it so, cl so clear that news companies are sort of struggling to capture attention if they can. Um, and, and everyone's sort of livelihoods um, are, are, are hinged on this and at stake in this. And what it did was to make it very, bring it very much to the surface that when content gets produced, when truth claims get circulated, it's always being circulated for some particular interest or objective. Mm. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't happen, right? And so there's sort of no pretense of um, an independent or an altruistic or a purely for the sake of truth kind of news practice. Um, and then th that becomes a very part that sort of contributes to this ongoing existential struggle of trying to be a journalist working towards the good. It's, it's so clear that this medium is a medium of particular agendas. Mm. Um, how can we then think of it as potentially 
a site where um, a public good could be achieved, right? So mm-hmm. really sort of challenging the heart of news as in um, the possibility of a public as in the sense of a collective that meets in discourse that can meet in and through common truths. I mean, all of that sort of comes under threat. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing that I am really walking away from uh, this conversation is that, uh, you know, if, if we stop to think of China in less caricatured terms, you see that it's a, another modern society and, and the things that are affecting us are also affecting them. It's not a completely different system. Like we're all sort of going through the same things. And I'm really surprised by the parallels. So I, I have one more question. What do, like, what, can Americans learn by taking China more seriously? By really, instead of, by getting away from the Cold War caricatures and really having an earnest and deep engagement with the society, what do sociologists and anthropologists, in particular American ones, like what can we gain by opening our eyes to the complexity of China, the nuance of China? I think, I mean, in this, um, I think in this era, right, China has become so powerful. It's just important for people to be an informed citizen. So you can participate, so people, American can participate in meaningful uh, conversations about like policy, perhaps in the U.S. And because U.S. really has been, uh, have U.S. has so many policy related to China. And if all of the policy makings are based on um, inaccurate understanding of China, that would be a disaster. And I will give you an example, a very unfortunate example. Yes, please. So um, uh, President Clinton uh, made very important decisions about uh, trade relation, U.S.-China trade relation back to uh, late 1990s. And at that time, he assumed, and also some, and actually some lobby, like uh, some politicians, some business people try to lobby the government. And the assumption was that um, um, marketization and political uh, and democratization would go hand in hand. <laughs> so that's a very strong assumption. And then now we know what's the outcome. And a lot of calculations, a lot of um, agreements, a lot of policy were based on that very, very wrong assumptions. And I, I, I do believe that... Um, a more uh, realistic understanding of China would be very important um, for the U.S. And I, every year I teach an undergrads uh, and also graduate level course on contemporary Chinese society. And um, so many students are very eager to learn to have more accurate understanding of the complex system in China. And I think that's how I contribute to um, to a more, (laughs) a better understanding of China. And so many of my students, my students include like officials from the US. Mm. So they graduate from college and maybe they get job from the, they got job from the Department of the State and also include some uh, officials in in Japan or Singaporean government, Mm. you know? So this, and also I have a lot of students who want to be computer scientists, they want to do business. And they really think it's very important to, to learn about China. And um, I think, uh, unfortunately, development in the US, uh, in American sociology, I would say, is uh, is American-centric, uh, the tendency of focusing only on American domestic issue. 
And I, I do think it's very important to understand and address uh, problems in the U.S., but um, it's also important to know other parts of the world. So for me, um, as a sociologist who study China, I would really appreciate if um, there are more um, Americanists in our discipline can pay more attention to what happens in China. And I also hope like top journal, I mean, journals wouldn't reject our submission just because our findings cannot be generalized to other contexts. <laughs> yeah, that's my thoughts. Emily? Yeah, this is such a big and hard question. I, yeah. feel like, I feel like there's the possibility of recognizing these really important parallels. And I guess it, it does come back down to sort of America and China being contemporaries. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and including communism or socialism and liberalism having been sort of the twins of the 21st century, uh, the 20th century, right? Mm. Um, and sort of, I guess, what seems to be a common transition, call it crisis if one wants, but is that we're moving out, we have moved out of the broadcast era. Um, and the broadcast, broadcast news um, was one of the pillars of what Charles Taylor has called the modern social imaginary, right? This idea that nations and societies can constitute themselves as a people or a public through the medium of the printed or the broadcast word, um, that the text, right, would be the place where um, a sort of a, a polis can be created. And socialism and liberalism um, were two different versions of actually that same ideal, right? That, so whether it was the party that had the monopoly on the truth and sort of propagated that truth to everyone else, or on the other hand, whether you know, every individual is able to contribute and say their own opinions and still arrive at some collective truth. Both of those were ideas that through discourse, we would arrive at a, a common understanding of our reality and therefore be able to discuss a common way forward. Um, and I think in both, on both sides of this divide, we're at a situation where that no longer seems to be the case, right? There's, um, whether it's because of technology or commercialization or the fragmentation of audiences, there is really this question now um, of, um, is it still possible for people to meet in the space of a text? Or is it the case now that all these publicly circulating true claims are actually just, you know, fueled by one particular outlook or interest or another? In, in which case, what is the possibility for collective life, right? If, if we've sort of lost the news as a space of common discourse, then where where are we going to find another one? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no. I mean, not that America can learn from China on that, but that, you know, if we could recognize that we're both, both that both of these um, are in that same sort of crisis, we could all stand to learn something <laughs> from that. Probably. You know, that that's what I'm, that's what I'm walking away with. I'm really walking away with the idea, you know, it, and it's, it's so obvious when you say it, but sometimes you don't recognize it. There's a whole society going on in China. More than that exists, more than whatever is going on between China and the U.S. or geopolitical affairs. It's just like a rich empirical, you know, it's a, a complete society with rich empirical material to, for us to better understand what we study. And it's like really to our detriment to shut ourselves off from like a sixth of humanity, basically, 
when we don't take it seriously. I just, uh, one more thing. We got to go because we're up to an hour and then my producers get mad if the show goes over an hour because they have to cut it. But before we go, if there's anybody listening uh, who is interested in China and uh, wants to follow more, you got any uh, good books, any new books from colleagues or friends that you want to plug right before we we go off? Any, Any recommendations, any canonical books that we can't miss? Give us a reading. One reading tip, if you can. Emily, I'll start with you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so many ethnographies of China. I feel like ethnography is a great way in um, to this sort of, um, to, to, to just sort of instantly access the richness and the reality and the complexity of this um, other sort of other space. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I can think of a good friend of mine um, in your city, Colombia, Nick Bartlett. He's, he's written a book. Um, about um, recovering drug addicts in China and how the process of drug recovery, what that looks like in China, um, as wow. a post, particularly a post Mao Mao context, um, people, you know, colleagues and friends writing about everything. Uh, oh, wow. yeah, it's kind of nonsense for me to be like, "Can you name any good China scholars?" Because that's like someone saying, "Can you name any good scholars?" It's like, yeah, I can name a lot of scholars. <laughs> what a dumb question it's a dumb well let me ask you this do you is there any first of all that book sounds awesome like i'm glad i asked the question because i'm totally going to look at this book yeah uh, it's called recovering histories that sounds awesome that sounds very (laughs) awesome but like okay but fine but you know do you you have any more friends whose books you'd like to plug before before we go off yeah Yeah, i actually want to recommend a great book um oh can you (laughs) Oh, hold on. Actually, yeah, your green screen is... Uh, oh, there we go. Yeah. The logic so it's of called The Logic of Government uh, Governance in China. It's written by um, Prof- Professor Shi Guangzhou at uh, Stanford Sociology. So I think this book gives the most accurate and um, insightful analysis of how the Chinese government at a local level um, operates on a daily basis um, based on his uh, ethnography. So it's very difficult to have access to uh, local governments to really be able to observe their daily operations. So if for anyone who is interested in Chinese politics and Chinese how the Chinese government operates, this is a great book to read. I read a Chinese version because in the beginning he wrote uh, he, he he wrote a Chinese version, but now the English uh, translation is out. So I cannot um, I, I I really cannot wait to read this. Uh, the book in English. Amazing. Uh, well, I want to thank you both for this, uh, for coming to this panel. I learned a lot and it was eye-opening. So thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Alan. It was really thank nice you. to talk to you. <laughs> Bye. All right. So for, first of all, today, just before we go, let's just one more look at those books just to be sure that everybody sees it. So if you enjoyed this conversation, you can catch Emily's new book, The Currency of Truth, Newsmaking in Late Socialist Imaginaries in China's Digital Era. That's with the University of Michigan Press. And Yawen's a very, very well-regarded book, The Contentious Public Sphere, Law, Media, and Authoritarian Rule in China. Two terrific books, two really wonderful scholars, and I want to thank you both for coming on today. It was great.
Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. All right. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. On behalf of my panelists, my name is Joe Cohen. Thank you very much. Join us again on February 7th for Daniel Larson. Until then, goodbye.